Hello guys, welcome to the ThinkCast, directly from ThinkScon Amsterdam, in, again in a very funky place to record a podcast because the Vox Hotel is full of people and it's hard to find like a silent place to record a podcast, so we're trying to do our best. But we have two people here from the South. Today we have like Amy Elliott, which is the design director at Simply Secure, and myself, and we have like this beautiful sunny, uh, sunny day outside, which we're kind so of missing. Nice, yes. I miss uh, some parts of the California weather um, in uh, in Berlin, so it's nice to get sun in Amsterdam. It is. It's quite odd. It's quite a nice community of Berliners around here in, in ThingsCon. It was interesting yesterday to see like the Berliner corner somehow. Yeah, I thought so too. And a nice early morning flight. Yeah, that was <laughs> not the best one. Yeah. So Amy, what? So you recently moved to to Berlin, right? To I did. Yes. To join Simply Secure. Uh, Simply Secure is a virtual organization. So uh, when I quit IDEO uh, in San Francisco, I was working for Simply Secure, but we're all um, distributed. So I had the freedom to move, and it seemed like a good opportunity to spend some time in in Berlin. So still with Simply Secure, now just making the time zones work. Our executive Director Scout Brody is on the East Coast of the US, and I'm trying to connect with more people in Europe, Middle East, Africa, and uh, learn from what they're doing. Cool, well, and you you are the design director at Simply Secure in Berlin, right? Yes. So what, what, what do you do there? Well, um, Simply Secure does open research and consulting, and we are passionate about privacy, security, and ethics. and kind of two main uh, groups of people that I'm, I'm trying to support their work. So as a nonprofit, we're making resources to help professionals do their jobs better. One group is uh, security professionals, like cryptographers, like InfoSec, very technical people that are still coming to and beginning to learn about like, human-centered design and what user research and user experience is. And then the other group is more with a design lens, which is getting UX designers excited about security and, and privacy. Uh, that's a tough one. It is. There are really big cultural differences. And you know, people talk about like, relationships between you know, d designers and, and developers. And you know, in, the, uh, in the InfoSec community, there's a lot of just really kind of like hardcore ideology. People are super motivated to engage with security. So it can be difficult to communicate empathy for people that don't necessarily get security and are just trying to kind of go about something else. But uh, I love the, the I, I love getting designers excited. And for me, a lot of it is about um, changing the attitude instead of making security something that's like, no, no, can't do this, make it exciting. Be like, yes, like make your thing better. Let's get everyone excited about being responsible. And in the end, it also like affects your whole user experience when things go wrong, right? But we are normally not used to blame the designers for that. It's probably the coders or the developers or the infrastructure <laughs> that didn't cover that use case. You know, that's part of it, but I, I want I want more designers making more things. I want more designers leading more organizations. And I think that 
security and privacy are becoming hot right now, and that's something that uh, designers, UX people can do to build their skills and kind of move into a leadership role in, in their organizations. Yeah, so and the, what's, the, what's the status of privacy and security right now? You gave a talk today. I did. <laughs> this morning. Uh, the news is a bit grim. I mean, so coming from the United States, I think that um, Girl Cory Doctorow, who is uh, someone that I really admire that works with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, he's an advisor to Simply Secure, uses the phrase, we've reached peak indifference to surveillance. And I hope that that's true and that we're gonna start to see um, a change of people caring more. Um, I think that the US election is making um, people that may not have been concerned about their privacy before think more um, critically about what kinds of information are being gathered about them and how that might be shared. Uh, because that's, that's something that uh, do, you, do you agree that we are some sort of kind of in a tipping point that until now just people inside of the tech bubble were starting to be worried about that or maybe also people were a little bit more paranoid about the world in general. Mm -hmm. But now it gets to the point that the regular person who is not very tech savvy but yeah. starts to become more aware of well, that's some, somebody is doing something with my data, which might be an, even an abstract concept for them, but they are getting there. I think that's right. So, uh, as usual, we are in the corridor, so there is always people walking around and trying to get their elevator to the, um, to the lobby, I suppose. messaging tools. I think that messaging apps like WhatsApp are actually pretty interesting from a design point of view because uh, WhatsApp uses this convention when you get a little uh, check mark or a, a tick mark if you've yeah. seen it. So that is a UX decision that's changing behavior and sometimes people will be really careful about how they handle their phone and how they touch it because they don't want to make the, the check because yeah. after the check comes then they know they're like oh respond and I don't know what to say. Um, it's even becoming like a, pl a plot line in a movie. You see the, the dots like dot, 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 like several people are typing on yeah. Slack or a friend is writing a comment on Facebook. And these moments are design moments that show how our human react relationships are mediated through technology. And very simple details because we are, come on, we are all guilty of trying to avoid messages <laughs> or trying to not open WhatsApp so we don't appear like, oh, last seen at 7, 5 p.m. <laughs> that's exactly right. But that's amazing. Like, I was, the very small feature can change so much about your behavior. Are you becoming paranoid? Why, why did you not answer to me? But I know you were active and yeah, it has like a deep impact on human behavior, which is, yeah, it's tricky, but how can we overcome this? I think this is a privacy issue that is, in, mm -hmm. is being imposed in users. Like most of the people do not want the, those features. I don't want, I know many people that don't want those features because it's very controlling. I miss the whole times of chatting that you don't have like this kind of notifications. <laughs> That's right. Well, the reason that I, I use that as an example is not because it's a good example of privacy preservation, but it's a good example of simple UX revealing how the system is working underneath. So if I extend that, how does the system work underneath to a much more complex area? 
how do you get a credit score? How should a bank decide if you deserve a credit card or a loan? How do I know what my behavior, um, how my behavior influences those decisions? And as a specific example, I, I saw a, a company that was using uh, the style of your writing on like Instagram and, and Facebook to determine what your insurance rate should be. They can guess, uh, like saying if you use a lot of exclamation points, maybe you're excitable and maybe you're a bad driver. And that just seemed completely crazy to me, but maybe there's a, a business there. So that's a very abstract system where my behavior is somehow costing me money and, or changing services that I have access to. And I, I think we're getting into this constant like rating, everybody's rating everyone else like, you know, oh, I used this My Taxi app in Berlin and you know, I'm rating the drivers and their taxis and they're rating me as a passenger and if I get a bad rating, then I can't get a taxi anymore, I guess. Yeah, well, an Uber is it's a really nice example of that and how can affect like, especially the drivers. Absolutely. Yeah, I had this Uber drive uh, ride with, uh, with a guy uh, but the, actually, uh, the drive, the, the ride didn't went through the system, so I actually needed to go off the record, mm -hmm. but was still a Uber driver. So, but that was my opportunity to to ask him. Okay, I can ask you anything, like I wanted to ask to an Uber driver because I'm paying you under the counter. And speaking of rating systems, I was I asked him like, how do you deal with this rating system? Because it really affects your daily business. It, mm -hmm. And uh, oh, it's easy. It's very easy. You know, people are very um, egocentric. And so when they are leaving the car and about to write to rate me, I just ask them if they want to know their internal rating and they get really surprised. What internal rating? Yes, you as a customer have an internal rating. So if I score you really badly, you don't get the Uber for the next two weeks. And this is where people started to rate me really good. <laughs> Wow, that's kind of amazing. So, yeah, it, it changes our social behavior for sure. And it becomes more and more scary when you have like, for example, in the cases of connected cars and so on, that are talking directly to your insurance company. And is that ethical? Is that, is that something that we should aim for? This kind of, I, it has these benefits, of course, but it's also a big intrusion in your own private life. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is there's kinds of data that you give away and you can never get it back. So every time there's some sort of data hack something, people are like, oh, Yahoo got hacked. I don't care. I don't use Yahoo anymore. I can just change my password. But the point is, yeah, but you can't change your birthday. I mean, you can't change your mother's maiden name or your dog, like those security uh, questions is, are now coming with more public information and the reality of the or the interfaces haven't caught up with reality like we're acting like oh it's some secret information that only someone that knows me really closely would know my mother's maiden name but you can look on the internet and pretty easily figure that out for a lot of people there's genealogy websites you search a newspaper or whatever like it's not like some secret insider information yeah yeah, once it's in, in the internet, the internet did not forget and does not forgive. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And what does that mean for IoT in specific? Because now we are getting 
uh, trapped we, all, the, all the time. I mean, I think for me, this Marais botnet has really flipped some of my thinking about this, where I had imagined IoT devices as potentially spying on me or things in my, my household. And I can manage that risk as an individual. But the piece I was missing was the, the collective good about how, well, actually, if there's any part of the internet that I value, and I value the open internet very, very much, that means that I don't want my vacuum cleaner and DVR joining a bot network to take down parts of the internet. Like people should be able to access GitHub or people should be able to read um, journalists' voices And I don't know how to manage that risk because you, you can't think about it as a mathematical problem of dividing up what small percentage of the devices is, is, is your responsibility. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's so hard because especially in hardware, there's so much financial incentive. Like you've got your bill of materials and how can you shave like a couple of cents off each price and just the reality of getting things made and, and shipped. and. And then these things are in place and, and that's, it's just really tough because your decision to save a few cents can actually have security implications because, oh, there's no path to do like a firmware upgrade and, and you, you put this thing in your house and it's going to be there for two years and then it will be compromised and there's no way to update it and it's just there. And, and how, do you even, how do you even alert people and, and communicate back to the to the customers. We, we just haven't really thought that through as a system. Yeah, but for, well, with these D DDoS attacks that we had mm -hmm. like recently and like especially this particular ch Chinese camera that was mm -hmm. a massive attack and they took that pretty lightly. It's kind of, mm, it's, it's okay. It's just a cheap camera. What would you expect from it? But um, is that people are not, uh, businesses are, uh, and product developers are not taking that seriously or is just a merely a cost factor? I mean, I think that they're related. And right now, in the current state of software, as a society, we've decided that we're okay exchanging our behavior for free content. And I think an individual can decide to opt out to the, of that to one degree or another. But as a society, that's just sort of the norm. The norm is you check yes or okay, and then you get free stuff. And it's difficult now to reimagine how that system could be different. And people are starting to, to work on that, but the whole kind of Internet of Things landscape feels newer and fresher and an opportunity to actually do better from the beginning. Like we don't have however many years you want to count from 20 years, 30 years of like, like legacy code and all these stuff in place, you can actually like do better from the ground up. So it's kind of a cool opportunity, I think. Yeah, and, and it's not a layer that you put on top, right? Mm -mm. It's something that needs to be part of the process since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things around updating and, and I've, I've thought about this just from a UX point of view. I think designers have done a lot of stuff like The, the in-dashboard uh, display for things like the Toyota Prius, like really early electric car, changed driving behavior. I mean, they communicated all this information about are you, which, are you using electric motor, are you using you know, gas, how is it recharging? And because it shows what your uh, like miles per gallon or whatever that is in, in Europe, um, 
dynamically, it actually influences driving. And so I see how design is helping people save money for retirement and track their steps and floss their teeth and all these other things that we thought were boring. And now it's like, okay, well, can we turn that to updating? So, I mean, it, you see this is almost like a cliche on Twitter, like people like that use the Mac have all these like updates stacked up in the top right of the screen, like creative cloud, you have five updates and like this software, that software, all mm. these updates. And it's so hard to get people to do that. And that's like the thing that you need to do for security. And so many things about how that experience is delivered are just broken. And that's like a really specific area that I think designers could work on. Yeah, definitely. I, I was at a workshop yesterday from DAOs, mm. from, which is quite an interesting project. Mm. And they are facing, which basically it's a box that you can connect to your modem and create some sort of identifies all of your connected devices and like from your fridge to mm -hmm. your Wi-Fi to your smartphone and it acts some sort of a firewall and you can every time that one of these devices is attacked or trying to or hmm. being menaced by 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 an attack you can turn off the connection to to the internet immediately hmm. for that specific device which but the problem they are facing which I think is a problem that many people are facing as well is like how can you communicate that in a UX level that people actually get interest in that, mm -hmm. understand what's behind it, and is actually friendly to use? And it's so hard. And uh, I've, I've been really getting a lot of mileage out of this video clip that shows what your Instagram uh, notifications would look like if you have 8 million followers. Yeah, and yeah. it's just, you just see, it's almost like the visual DDoS attack. Like they, all the notifications just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And that's interesting because if you have other notifications that are trying to happen at the same time, they just get lost. Like it goes by too fast. You can't even see it. So the problem isn't even contained at Instagram. Like it can break kind of other applications. You only have so much real estate on your mobile phone, like yeah. on the screen. And when I think about like the notification problem generally, how are all these devices going to call for help? How are they going to say like, something's wrong, someone's accessing my data in ways that aren't overwhelming. There, there's so many things about that that need to be rethought. I mean, both like what the messages are, how they're delivered, and even going back to like 1990s or early 2000s, like context detection and what can you infer about the environment and a good time to interrupt people. And so much of that just needs to be rethought. Sure, but one of the, yeah. And one of the things that came came to my mind yesterday during that workshop, because the thematic is exactly the, that one, is kind of, um, but can just be like an antivirus, like a new one, uh, like the same approach that antivirus took on the a few years back. You were not noted, yeah, on the beginning you were notified by each and every kind of attack that your mm -hmm. computer was suffering. Till a certain point, most of them are automated and you just receive like the major ones. Hmm. But seems like in the internet of things you are just being notified for whatever yeah. constantly there is no kind of information architecture or filtering that exactly there's no thought behind that's what we need that information yes that's so well said i'm gonna write that down the information architecture of filtering i mean that's that's kind of what's missing and helping people set priorities about how much detail they care about yeah especially in iot i find it like a bit ironic that you everyone is trying to make some sort of connected product and take real estate 
on your screen and off and your, your your mind space to notify that your food is ready in your oven that <laughs> something is cooking i really want to go i want to go back to that one <laughs> uh, uh, but nobody's actually making a, a priority out of that nobody's making being meaningful about it it's like okay you buy my product you connect it to the internet wait for all the notifications that go through the day going to pop out and if we add the security layer you end up like with an instagram that's right it's so hard to figure figure that out i mean i think i mean really it's about what are the negative consequences and it's so hard to expose that because it's like okay maybe one bad rating against me doesn't affect my life so much but then they start to accumulate and it's harder for me to get these services like whatever taxi uber um how how does how, what can i do to change my behavior and i've been pretty inspired um you know just like work some of like, uh, like kate crawford and meredith whitaker in, in uh, new york did this event called ai now that was a lot about kind of exposing algorithms and empowering people in areas like labor or health and and how can you help them everyone understand what these systems are and it, it's there's a design element that i want to see more of and it's it's not just like oh technology and then the law and policy there there's also this other thing which is how do you communicate information in an actionable way like how do you make this well designed true but I th and isn't that like uh, one of one of the ways is to get like a better collaboration between design and engineer to understand what's happening on the system and what's the best way to communicate it and prioritize Mm -hmm. designers and engineers especially on a product development they tend to be quite quite something together and quite violent i know by <laughs> my experience <laughs> so the collaboration yeah. is a bit tricky how do you process that like it's i mean i i think a lot of it is if i think about what i learned as a human-centered design practitioner around listening to end users it's that same process and turning it to your team Like, how can I understand my colleagues or, you know, my boss, my organization and, and figure out how to find common ground and, and how to how to work together? And a lot of that just starts to get into how are people compensated? Like what makes people think they're doing a good job? I mean, there's there's just so many different kind of levels to that. Yeah, true that. So, yeah, it just came to my mind like a little bit skipping the, the notification thing. Mm -hmm. Like at a certain point uh, in the case of the, this smart oven, uh, mm -hmm. I knew the project before. Uh, I don't want to start bashing on the project right now. But uh, the case of the lack of nice copy, for example, mm -hmm. and what kind of, how do you inform the user in this kind of alert, alert, alert that somebody placed in a placeholder in the Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Just uh, This will be a notification for this case, but we'll get back to that. Is Copy is really important nowadays, more it's and more. So important, yeah. I mean, I love I love Slack for that reason. I think that they've done a really nice job about um, building in these little brand moments and in the voice that they write with. I think is 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 very approachable and and friendly and not too cute and not too funny, but it just feels like okay, yes, that's just their choices of like remember to stay hydrated and drink water. And it's like, okay, sure, that's good. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> And you were talking about that, uh, for example, in Slack, you have like this 
bot that communicates in a group chat but mm -hmm. doesn't communicate with you in the in the in the one to one. That's right. Which is quite a respectful thing to do, right? Uh, yeah, it's respectful, but then it's also like, okay, does that mean that people think that those messages are private cuz Slack still has them, you know? Yeah. But that's just like like times that I've done field research with people about Facebook, of of all of the complaints about Facebook, it's been interesting to me that one of the things that I've heard freak people out is when they delete, when they're typing something and they decide not to post it because they, they like reconsider yeah. that Facebook has that. Like Facebook literally has like the, <laughs> Facebook has the, the kind of scratch file of all of the things that you reconsidered. Yeah, the, and the, that's actually pretty insightful to be like, okay, these are all of the things that you were like close to, but then thought the better of. Like that's a real like vulnerability. I mean, emotional vulnerability. True that because at that moment you are typing and you probably are having like a very private moment and you are kind of in the limbo. Should I? Shouldn't I? Which is very very personal in your <laughs> mind. But there's like yeah, there's Facebook watching you and God knows what they do with their with that data. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Facebook is a closed system. I mean, there's so many of their policies, like their real name policy, hugely problematic. I think ways in which they're engaging in um, like banning people from the platform or um, like censoring or limiting content. I mean, there's so many things. It's overwhelming, like reasons to um, have problems with that platform. But I think on the UX side, they're also trying to do some things like their privacy checkup and make some of these um, uh, decisions more visible, even though in the end it's like, yes, it's their data. Like the reason that Facebook exists is to make money selling ads based on behavior. Like it's a, a targeting system, like that's what it's for. But I mean, when I think about, um, you know, I've heard stories of people being banned from Facebook for really, like, to me, unfair reasons. And there's a cascading effect from that. So I can say, oh, I don't like you politically, so I'm going to get, you know, 20 people, I don't know the number to complain and say, oh, your, your, your posts are offensive. And Facebook will issue a, a temporary like warning and you'll be punished and suspended from the platform. Well, then you can't use your Facebook to log into other services like Tinder. And if you want to freak people in Silicon Valley out, just be like, you might not be able to like, you know, use, you can't use like anything that takes Facebook. People are like, what? That's outrageous. Or Facebook messengers are popular platform globally and then you lose access to those messages like if Facebook bans you you have literally no way to find your friends and family again you know yeah that that yeah that's tricky because uh, for example I'm trying to avoid Facebook for the last months mm -hmm. and trying to not actively use it but I came to realize that all my accounts or most of the, the service you use it's actually connected to Facebook or to some other Twitter or other social platform and you are hooked because at a certain point, or you make new accounts and you need to redo your old I web ID, or you just suck it up. I know it's 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 easy for me to feel discouraged about all of these problems, and I mean I think that we're not going to solve everything right away, but we can at least stop making things worse as quickly. <laughs> so yeah. we can have some modest goals and. 
I don't know. I always come back to thinking about the whole like three dots problem. Someone is typing, like get the check mark. Like how can we make more of these systems visible? Like what would it be like if you could actually follow your, your data? Like Facebook can show you three dots that someone is typing. And, but does that mean they could show you that your ad is being targeted? Like, could you actually get a window into these auctions or whatever mechanism? Like how, how come I'm getting the ad for, you know, go to the Canary Islands or something? Yeah. Like how did that process work? And what's your market value? Because I think we all have market <laughs> values in the internet, like, yeah. Indeed, yeah. the value of the data we gave away is so much more than whatever like service we get back. So one of the ideas that we've been thinking around, like especially for the last two years, me and Paul, was is the idea of almost full anonym, uh, anonymity. Hmm. So being some sort of social network or ID, even for smart cities where you don't, where you don't have your personal information is not like Amy mm -hmm. Elliot or it's not me <coughs> it's I'm a number mm -hmm. with preferences with statistical data that allows me to go to the services and use the service but you can't know that is me but on another hand it's if you look at cases for example from dark web and mm -hmm. dark web is a big um, hype uh, word but <coughs> where everyone is anonymous and you can do whatever well cases like silk road and so mm -hmm. on there there are all this is also a dark side of this full anonymity so uh, and yeah where is the balance yeah i mean it's just so hard for me i don't like thinking about security and privacy as as trade-offs and one of the things that i'm grappling with is someone that's been on the internet for a long time, I absorbed a lot of those kind of early 90s values around, oh, we're gonna connect all the people and people are basically good. And now I'm having to reconsider <laughs> some of my positions. And I, I think that there are a lot of, of challenges, but people are gonna engage in human behavior and there's a design role in guiding that behavior and in setting norms. And I'd like to see more intentional discussion around what technology makes easy and what technology makes hard. And when I c compare in Silicon Valley, I feel like the conversation around algorithms and accountability and bias is, is still behind where it needs to be. I mean, this idea like it's just technology and technology is neutral. And I'm so glad to see more more voices and people that have been working longer on this than you know that than I have being like that's not true like software encodes values like you some things are easy and some things are hard and if you bury something under three levels of settings only a very motivated person is going to find it and if you put up in a roadblock where you literally can't advance unless you say yes or no to something that everyone's gonna say either yes or no and these are design decisions with consequences. So let's be more clear about what values we want our software to embody. Yeah. But I'm thinking about, for example, if you look at these little details on Facebook, like last scene or like in this WhatsApp, there is a lot of user value in that. Like th there is a positive thing. Like, mm -hmm. okay, I know that my message was delivered. I'm fair enough because if I think back to the times of SMSs, mm -hmm. you never knew if it was delivered <laughs> or not. If person, so it, it also creates some sort of anxiety. Nowadays, there is a value, but 
when mm-hmm. there's the trade-off of value and an inconvenience you know because there is value on that but there is like a lot of inconvenience there is two sides of it and as a designer it's very mm-hmm. hard to choose between them because at, on one level you got this is very good for my user and mm-hmm. actually they like it and user testing and yada yada but on the long run you understand that well this might be a massive social problem hmm. that's a good point yeah i mean i'd like to see more people thinking about the consequences like product managers developers designers engineers you know everybody and i think until until we're clear and like making decisions it's gonna just be like arbitrary things just happening kind of for no reason and when i think about some projects that i've been a part of and if there's this big push to get to market like sometimes things just aren't done and it's not clear that you are like oh we're avoiding this like getting things out in the world is hard and like usually people are just working really hard to like get get things out the door already and i think about it more as like a prioritization problem like you do this thing when something else doesn't get done and how do you justify that to your, your to your team like how do you make accountability around like the actual mechanics of getting a product or software or service out the door yeah and in this case security and privacy comes very low on priority yeah you think like oh we can add that later no no you can't you have to do it now it's too late yeah because probably will influence the whole software architecture mm-hmm. and infrastructure so you need to create it from bottom up that's right so in a very practical level yeah how can you excite designers to think about those things because it's not a feature it's mm-hmm. not it's not something cool that you're going to put out in the market it's some sort of a responsibility that you have and it's a very abstract one because you never know what what can go wrong you need to make a lot of assumptions yeah i mean some of it's just like temperamental i mean i got really into enterprise software for a while people are like oh enterprise software it's so you know old-fashioned and slow and like apps are all cool but i mean i think that there's certain people that become designers because they're drawn to big systems like systems design and systematic problems and i i hope that getting people that have that kind of passion for like mapping out really complex things can find like a fertile uh, area for work and taking on more about privacy and security because when i think about like idealistic designers that want to work for good they're clearer paths forward like oh you want to work for social change somehow like you know empowering more people inclusion diversity in tech okay there's a conversation around that and if you're really interested in an environmental justice or something like that there there's ways forward and I, i would like privacy to be this other thing that people are aware of and that they can they can use that to become better designers like they can do the work to improve their products but then they can also kind of build their their craft and kind of go in that direction and I think that it's there's a a lot of I don't know if it's awareness building or publicity or reputation changing needed just to get people to reconsider it because I think there's a lot of judgments about oh people that are interested in security like it's not necessarily presented as as exciting as it could be yeah uh, and I, I think like for example f- yeah you have this type you have you might have like a race of new type of designers you know mm-hmm. i think there is a new generation of designers coming along like i'm going to do invisible interfaces and 
chatbots and creating mm-hmm. characters or VR. So there is a new breed of designers mm-hmm. and techniques coming uh, coming along. So designing for privacy might be a very niche thing that you you might start having. Like this, I'm a private no, private designer sounds bad, but I'm a designer for privacy. Yeah. yeah, I I hope so. I mean, one of the things that Simply Secure wants to do is give the people that want to work there a platform, like help them tell their stories, help them share their work, help them build their reputation, mentor people. I mean, let's like grow a community of people that want to work on this. So if you need to, what's the first steps for designers to start thinking about this? I mean, I think it's just identifying the problem and there's certain really common things. Like, you know, if you if you're selling something, you need a, some kind of shopping cart checkout flow. And there are a lot of, like to be very practical. So one of the things that made me crazy when I would um, mentor startups is some group, very little money, would be like, oh, our shopping cart abandonment rate's too high. And people are putting stuff in their shopping cart, our shopping cart, and then leaving it. So I'm going to use my very limited amount of money to hire a, a designer to fix our shopping cart like fix our checkout flow. And I would just think, what are you doing? Like your shopping cart is fine. The problem is nobody wants your product. Like don't invest in a shopping cart. And then in, in this like VC context, you know, different groups are like, okay, just use this shopping cart. We've confirmed that this shopping cart is good enough. Stop worrying about the shopping cart. So I would like to see these other kind of like pattern libraries or, or templates for things like if you have a login, then you need a password recovery flow. Like, just use this. It's good enough. It's maybe yeah. not perfect for every case, but like, start here, you know. Or, um, you know, if people are doing user research or analytics, like, what are the right kind of basic building blocks? Maybe not excellent, but just sort of good enough. And I'd like to get those hands, those products, those templates, and things into the hands of, of designers because. People are working really fast and they just want to be like click pre-populate like how can i just like get this into my my thing so when you speak about templates are you speaking mm-hmm. about like for example um processes that are kind of standardized and you can just follow them so and just use them out of the box and worry with the, with the real problems i mean yeah i i think that that's one way that that could work and i would be excited ab- about that is that what you have on GitHub? No. No, I mean, the all. stuff on, on GitHub is on the research side. So my background's in design research and I'm, I'm trying to build up tools to help more people do research kind of at a, even a global scale. So um, I did, there's some of the stuff in the Simply Secure GitHub. I did a study in New York and there are uh, the interview guides and um, the consent forms and our participants bill of rights those things are all up there and the idea behind putting the interview guide up there is um, to help people frame questions around privacy and then I would hope that someone can you know fork that and then make a pull request and you can start to see kind of different versions like oh this is how this guide was adapted to this other context and then um, more recently this um, a workshop for prioritizing uh, what knowledge professionals want around privacy. So if you're a designer, what kinds of um, information do you want to get from where? So it's, it's more on the, um, on the research side. But who knows? The sky's the limit. I want to get more stuff up there. 2017. Fair enough. 
it's quite funny like that that you were we were speaking yesterday mm -hmm. about like open source and design mm -hmm. we, because we both have like some some design pro products or projects uh up in github mm -hmm. um so the design community needs to open up a little bit more to 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 open source like mm -hmm. like the developer community did do you this is also a way to fight somehow well fight is not the right way but it's a nice way to evolve the design practice i love it I'm, i mean there's open source design i mean there are group there's some folks I've, I've learned a little bit about i'd love to support more of their work i think that open source design is a really interesting way to think about the future and what it means for like us as professionals to be able to build and share knowledge well, it's true so how can people follow your work <laughs> or contribute to well that? um i'm on uh twitter at um a m e e L-I-O, Emilio, that's like my name with no T's, and I'm, that's a great place to reach out to me or um, via email, and um, Simply Secure has a public Slack channel, you can email slack at simplysecure.org um, and request an invitation, and I, I welcome, welcome feedback, and I, I really, I want to get more people doing this work, and if you're doing it, I want to help you Motivated to get it in front of more people. Yeah, you are kind of an ambassador, ambassador in that regard. And yeah, totally. And we need these kind of roles to push the practice forward and to open up new ways how to to deal in this case with this kind of security and privacy problems. That's exactly what I what I'm hoping to see more of. Keep holding the flag. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, it was really nice to have you yes. here, Amy. Uh, Good talking to you too. Are you enjoying ThingsCon? I am. ThingsCon is really cool. I'm impressed with the energy. I've learned a ton, and uh, it's I'm I'm really glad I got to be here. Biggest highlights? Biggest highlights. I enjoyed your workshop. <laughs> I I th think that um, I love I love tools to help facilitate conversations, and I think that. Um, the uh, service design kit that you showed is a really nice example of how to make that concrete. Um, I appreciate how many people are talking about ethics and responsibility, um, and it's it's been nice it's been nice to just meet people and hear kind of a range of different perspectives. It is a great yeah it is a great conference and a great community. I hope we can bring this to Berlin again next year. I hope so too. And join join from there mm -hmm. and in. I think I think it's a shout out for everyone listening to us that at a certain point you should join ThingsCon at least one time. Yes, go to ThingsCon. It's fun. And if you want to participate more on ethical IoT, no matter where you come from, ThingsCon is a really great, great platform. Great place to do that. Yeah. They've done a good job. So maybe we should go downstairs and join the, join the conference. Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you very much. We see okay. us in Berlin. We see us. Bye. 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 <laughs> Bye. Thank you.